All right, as uh, Ben said, we're going to be in Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 18. I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to pray, and then uh, we're going to see what God's Word has to say to us. So, uh, again, Isaiah 40, starting in verse 9. Um, our community group has spent the last three or four months going over this text, so it's very uh, very fresh and very alive, and hopefully it'll be very encouraging for you this morning. So, uh Pick it up in verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time to come together this morning. I pray that you will be magnified. I pray that we will shrink. Jesus, I pray that um, we will see how infinitely glorious you are. I thank you that you use us as broken vessels and just even as in preparing for this, as I've struggled with anxiety and pride and and fear of man and other things, Lord, that you are gracious and that you can still use this for your glory. So I pray right now, Lord, in these these coming minutes that we would be um, encouraged, that we would lift our eyes up to you and that we would see how eternal and infinite and glorious you are. And I pray, Lord, that we would get begin to get an understanding of just your your mass and your beauty and your love and just um, just how mighty you are. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless this time, and I pray, Lord, that we would leave here uh, feeling encouraged and built up. In your name, amen. So the title of today's message is God is Infinite, and we're going to look at a lot of the infinite qualities of who he is. Uh, and how he's eternal, and he has always existed. So I have a finite amount of time of about 35 minutes to talk about God being infinite. So it's kind of like trying to drink the whole Pacific Ocean in a shot glass. So we'll, we'll you know, do the best that we can, but we're going to spend all of eternity searching and exploring God and his infinite qualities. So uh, we, we will do well to just get a taste this morning. So uh, we are finite beings. We, we have limited capacity 
in, um, in, in everything that we do, in the amount of time that we're on earth, in the amount of things that we can consume, in the amount of strength that we have, in the amount of knowledge that we have. Everything we do is finite. Even the most powerful leaders in the world only have so much ability. So the President of the United States is considered by a lot of people to be, you know, kind of the most powerful position that you can attain to. So, but even presidents, as much power as they have, are so limited. Um, I mean, Obama, in the time that he's been president, has no idea what any of us have done in the six years that he's been president. And, and it, it's a, it takes a drain on us. God is constantly sustaining everything all the time. And so I wanted to go through, just to kind of get us uh, prepared, presidents before office and upon leaving office. So uh, this is George Bush in 2000, still kind of young and handsome. This is George Bush leaving office. So, you know, he looks a lot worse. You can see it on his face. He's like, Iraq, don't ask me about Iraq again. Um, you know, let's just leave me alone. So Obama, let's go to Obama. He doesn't even look old enough to vote there, really, and he's about to be president. And then let's go. He still has two years left. This looks like his grandfather, just six years later, Obama. You can see him. He's like, the economy, don't ask me about the economy. You know, so even people who have a lot of power, they don't stay in power forever. Everything that we have is finite. You know, there's nobody that stays in a job forever. Kids don't stay at home forever. Hopefully, they don't stay at home forever. They move out. Um, we just got a new puppy this year for Christmas. It was a big, it was the big Christmas present to our girls, and uh, she's cute, and hopefully she'll live for a long time. But one of the reasons we waited to get her was hopefully that our girls would be out of the house and out of college, but and then she would die after that, so we wouldn't have to deal with them, you know, being traumatically scarred by a puppy dying when they're young. So it may backfire. We don't know, but she's not going to live forever. Um, so nobody has an infinite amount of resources. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates are very rich, but there's even limits in what they can do with their money. Um, so uh, let's go on to uh, pass the pictures, unless you want to see the presidents again. So one of the things that we've been praying through for the last three months as elders is how can we as members of TCC increase our joy in God in 2015? And so um, this, you know, can, life can feel very difficult a lot of times, you know, when you're managing finances, when you're managing raising kids, uh, if you're managing getting older, you, you know, there are a lot of things in life that can weigh you down. And so we really have been praying that God would help increase our joy. And the best way for me to, to the, the best way that I'm encouraged and that I see my joy grow and really increase is by really focusing on who God is and how vast he is, how infinite he is, how eternal he is. And it really, really can help whatever you're going through. And it should get you really excited and motivated about the future, that we're not just going to all float around on clouds playing harps, that we're going to really, heaven is going to be real, where we're going to experience this God that we only get foretaste of now, and we're going to do that for eternity, and our joy is just going to increase as we get to spend more time with him. So um, I just have kind of put on, uh, on here some bullet points about, um, I, I think, benefits of really dwelling on God being infinite, um, that it does increase our joy. And, and we all have hard times. And if you're in the midst of hard times right now, you can take heart that, that it's temporary, that we are going to be, that you can find joy in God now, that he's sovereignly orchestrating whatever's happening for your good. And you don't have to worry about missing out on anything in life. You don't have to have a bucket list. 
because we're going to spend eternity enjoying him with in every moment of eternity is going to be more fulfilling and satisfying and joyous than the most exciting thing that's ever happened in your life. Um, and that should be that should get you very excited and hopefully that will drive your joy up whether you're in good times or whether you're in hard times. So we are very limited and we're limited in our resources. Uh, we're limited in our abilities and we're limited in our understanding. And when we get into the text, we're going to see three points about God that, that are kind of uh, the contradiction to this. One is just the message of God is so glorious. In the first part of the text, all we are to do is just behold how glorious God is. How, and then it goes in to talk about God being unlimited and then God being incomparable. So if you're taking notes, the three main things are we're going to behold God, God is unlimited, and God is incomparable. Now, we, on the other hand, are limited in everything that we do. We have limited resources. I remember as a kid going, going through grade school and into middle school, people were always talking about oil and how we were going to run out of oil and what will we do when we run out of oil. And people have been worried about, uh, we're worried about that. Now it seems people are more worried about water, that we're going to run out of water. What are we going to do when we run out of water? You can even get a graduate degree in water development for emerging countries like countries in Asia and Africa because people are so concerned about how do we develop water and, and have people use water as the population grows in a sustainable way. Um, and we're limited not only in our resources, but we're limited in our understanding. So they're as amazing as the last 200 years have been for innovation and development. There are so many things that we still don't understand. So when you think about the universe and how big it is, there's, scientists estimate there's about 95% of the universe. We still don't even know what it's made of. Not, not even do we not know where it is. or how, We don't even know what makes it up. We understand atoms and some other things, but beyond that, we don't know. Um, so I found a list of these with The Guardian, which is an English newspaper. Uh, obviously, we, don't, we haven't found a cure for cancer yet. Most of the ocean is still unexplored. So we know very little about the ocean and life. It's estimated that there are almost 9 million forms of life on the earth, of which we've classified less than 15%. So most of the life that God is creating and that he is sustaining and that he's even watched past, most of what he is doing, we don't even know about it yet or know what it is and, or how it exists. Um, I have a client who works for a drug company and he was telling me one time that he's in research and he was telling me the challenge is not finding compounds. They have millions of compounds. It's trying to figure out which compounds to chase down to, that, that will maybe promise and, and turn into a drug. So we, we're constantly trying to figure out how to harness and use our resources, but we have limited understanding and we have limited resources. And we have limited abilities. I'm reading a book right now about the art of memorization. And we still don't really know how a memory is stored and how we go retrieve it. But one of the things in the book, it, it talks, um, in the early part of the book, it talks about some of these people who have done amazing feats with memory. And the, it references this guy who memorized 100,000 people's names. Um, so I don't know how he did it, if he did the phone book or what he did. But um, there are over 7 billion people on the earth. So that's not even one-tenth of one percent of their names, much less their faces or knowing anything about them. God has created all seven 
billion people, and he knows each one of us better than we know ourselves. And he understands what's going on in every situation. Now, if you don't know much about God, you might be tempted to say, this is crazy talk. No one could be that powerful. It sounds like, you know, that maybe you had something to drink you shouldn't have before you got up here on stage. Um, But there are some verses that that, uh, back up what I'm saying. So if we're in Isaiah 40, look over to verse 27. So we're not, it's not part of our text, but it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? God's basically saying here, you're not getting away with anything. I see what's going on with every single person at every single moment. Why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord? God's, God wants us to know that he is sustaining everything, and he's aware of everything that's going on all the time. So Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, Jesus is responding. Some people are questioning. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. It's not a big deal for me, but for most of you, that's a big deal. Fear not, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. So God is saying, what's meant to to be communicated here is not that God has this deep affinity for sparrows. Sparrows were considered cheap and and a commodity without any kind of value. And what Jesus is saying is nothing happens to not even one sparrow that God is not in charge of what's happening there. So take heart that if God's concerned about sparrows, which have almost no value, he's concerned about you. And what's going on? All right, so I want to jump into the text now. That was just kind of the introduction. Um, so we're going to. But before we jump in, uh, I want to just kind of give a, a little bit of a runway. So the first um, eight verses in chapter forty, God's basically telling His people um, to take comfort, and He's reminding them that He's a God of His word. So when he proclaims something, when he says he's going to do something, it's going to happen. Okay, he, He's not one that, um, that lies. He's incapable of lying. He's not one that doesn't have power to carry out his proclamations. So he's, this, this whole section here, he's wanting to comfort his people. And then when we get into the verses we're going to be looking at, uh, verses 9 through 18, Frank Gabellian in his commentary talks about God's basically using a rhetorical uh, argument here with his people. And his goal is to not bring a bunch of of things to the forefront that they didn't know. It's not to bring in a bunch of new information and a bunch of new knowledge. He's going to remind them of truths that they already knew, that they're already aware of. And so he's going to come in and he's going to remind them of who he is and how powerful he is. Now, it's very difficult to think about something that is infinite because we have nothing in life, like as I mentioned, to compare it to. Everything we have, everything we deal with is finite. It either has a limited amount or it has a start and a stop. God is infinite. He's always existed and he always will exist. Um, And he has the ability to speak things, to create resources. That's an ability that we don't have. He's, He's infinite even in his ability to create. He can literally say things into being. We, everything we use has to come, everything we do has to come from raw materials. But God has the ability to just create 
out of nothing. Um, and so he's getting ready to really magnify himself in an effort to comfort his people and to remind them of who he is. So um, I'm going to start in verse 9. So it says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, why is God telling them to go out onto a high mountain and proclaim the good news? It's because he wants this message to spread among his people. He doesn't just want it to be in Jerusalem. So, you know, in today's times, he might say, uh, get you up to a high mountain, get on, get on your Twitter account. We're about to send out a message about God. Okay, so he wants this message to disseminate so that, other, so that all of his people are reminded. Now, what is the message? Because it says, you're a herald of good news. The whole crux of the message is, behold God. Behold who he is. Remember, feel the effect of who God is so that your heart will be encouraged. Now, why does he say, lift up your voice with strength? And why does he talk about fear not, or, or not having any fear? It's important to look at the history. At that time, Israel, Judah, was not the dominant political force. Assyria was, through a part of the time, while Isaiah was a prophet, and then Babylon superseded them, and Jerusalem eventually fell to Babylon. And a lot of people were taken captive and exported to, to Babylon. So this, they're not the dominant military political force in the world at this time. But it doesn't matter because they're God's chosen people and he's orchestrating everything according to his plan. So he's reminding them it doesn't matter what you see going on around you. Even if it looks like I'm not with you, I am with you and I'm for you and I'm working for your good. So... That's why you see this lifted up with strength. Lift it up. Fear not. And the whole message is, behold your God. And John Calvin sums up this verse. He says, behold your God is the sum of our happiness. That, that, that is it. That's how we find real joy. That's how we find real satisfaction. Okay? So even things in life that bring you a lot of satisfaction, um, it, it, at some point... If you enjoy them for too long, you don't enjoy it anymore. So as much as I love watching football, if I watch about two games in a row of football, I feel pretty stale and like I need to get a life and go do something else. As much as I love to eat delicious food, if I eat too much, I kind of regret that I even ate the, the whole meal. So there's nothing in life that doesn't end except God. Now, we're going to go on and he's going to talk about his might and his tenderness, and then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about his uh, being infinite. So in verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. So I picture this like giant Arnold Schwarzenegger arm coming out of the clouds, like just flexing itself and everybody kind of, you know, being in awe. So um, again, I think Calvin is helpful here because he talks about God is sufficient for himself. He does not need any assistance of anyone. So it's not that God is being stubborn or, or trying to say, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need your help. We have nothing to offer him. He is so mighty 
that, that we, are, we are poor and helpless before him. Now, it says, if you go on, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Now, what is his reward? Is he coming to reward those who've worked hard and have earned something? Is he coming to uh, reward those who have had things taken from them and to try to make things right? Well, it can be tempting to read it that way. But if you take this in context of the passage, the reward is God himself. He is the reward. So he's coming. And it's not that he's going to give you something because you're owed wages from him. No, he's the reward. We have nothing we can offer him, nothing that we can give to him. Um, And again, I think Calvin is helpful here because he says, um, God will not come to be beheld as unemployed, but to display his power and to make us feel it. So he himself is the reward and we will feel it. We will feel the effects of who God is and it will it will shake us. It will excite us. And so if, if we have made peace with God, there will be nothing sweeter than the reward we feel when we are with him for all eternity. On the flip side, if we have not made peace with him, we will feel the effects of his wrath and there will be nothing more dreadful than to be eternally separated from this God who's the only one that can provide true satisfaction for us. Now, we see this, we see God coming with all of this might. So, he's very gracious to us in that he contrasts verse 10 with verse 11, where we see a lot of tenderness, okay? Because you don't always think of mighty warriors as being tender. And so, God compares himself, he says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now, he's intentional here, and he picks sheep. He doesn't pick some wild animal like a lion that's going to be tamed. Sheep are not smart animals, and they're very needy. They need protection. They need food. They need um, somebody to watch after them to make sure that they don't go astray. And so you see this very gentle shepherd kind of taking care of his flock. And so I think it's easy to forget how infinite God is and how much he is sustaining us all the time. So I don't know about you, but I don't thank God for my life every time I take a breath. I don't thank God every morning that the sun came up. I don't thank him for every heartbeat. I rarely thank him that I'm even healthy. I don't, I don't think, I thank him when we sit down to pray we, you know, we offer prayers of thanks, but I don't think about all of the things that had to happen to orchestrate to get the food to the store, to get it to me, and all of the things that he's sustaining all the time. I don't, I don't thank him for maintaining gravity so that I don't float away into space. But there are all these things all of the time that God is sustaining and doing every single moment that we rarely even take time to think about. And, and it's, but it's good for us to occasionally reflect and think about all of the things that just seem like natural life and seem that we can take them for granted, that God is sustaining. He's the one that's providing those resources and providing that for us moment by moment. Um, 
So, and I, I think this can be especially helpful in hard times because um, when you think about shepherds with uh, sheep and lambs, a lot of times they're in fields or on hills or mountains. And so there are going to be times where, you know, the terrain is rough or the terrain is, is slick and the shepherd is going to have basically have to get the lambs from one place to another. And so it, when we're in hard times, and there will be hard times in our lives, God is there with us. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't even, um, he's not even out of control at that point. And so he will come in and pick us up in those times and carry us. Um, so you, can, you might even think of walking on the beach and only seeing one set of footprints. I was thinking about writing a poem about that. I don't know if anyone's ever done it. Um, so it, it's really important to soak in, I think, and kind of dwell on verse 11 and how tender God is that he would carry us in his bosom because we're getting ready to see how powerful he is and our minds are getting ready to be blown with how um, just infinitely sovereign and, and, and just his infiniteness. So let's go on to verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Now, God is big. I mean, when you think about the, the first one is probably the most overwhelming for me. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? When you think about how little water that you can hold in your hand, because it's not solid, it will run out. And you think about all of the oceans, all of the lakes, all of the rivers, all of the underground water. Don't forget, a lot of people in the world get their water from underground. You think about all of the water in the world that God can hold in his hand. So I was reading this verse a few weeks ago at breakfast and because uh, I'm spiritual and I want to use that in my sermon. Um, I'm just kidding. No, we were, happy to re- we were happy to be reading this verse because we were going over it in our community group, as I mentioned. And so uh, my oldest, Katie Beth, I said to her, I, I read this verse, and I said, I said, look at my hand. And I said, how much water do you think I could hold in there? And she, you know, said pretty much nothing. And I said, well, how big do you think God's hand must be that he can hold all the water in the world in his hand. And she said, it must be like 300,000 times bigger. And I said, even bigger than that. And so, and again, this is imagery here for us. God is kind of stooping to our level to help us understand him. It's not that he physically has a hand that can hold the waters and that's it. Again, he is infinite. Psalm 139, 7 through 8 says, Where shall I go from your presence? Or where, sh- where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are, to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or, or in death, you are there. So God has created the universe and he is not limited by size. So when you think about the imagery in here, you think about the heavens, which we haven't even begun to explore all of the universe, and you kind of picture God marking it off of like a tape measure. He marks it off with a span. You think about the mountains. It took us from the beginning of creation until 1953 just to climb the tallest mountain in the world. And so when you think about all of the mountains, the Rockies, the Andes, the Himalayans, 
the, uh, the Swiss Alps. You think about all the mountains in the world, and God is so, he's magnifying himself so big here that you see him just kind of picking him up and putting him on a scale. And so, um, the, the whole point is to shrink us down and to help us see how big and how infinite and how glorious God is. So, I haven't traveled to a lot of exotic places, but every time I go to the ocean, I feel really small. Because as enjoyable and relaxing it is, as it is, it's also a little stressful. Because you have to think about tides, and especially if you have little kids, not going too far out so that no one drowns. And even on the clearest day when I'm standing on the beach looking out, I can see a few miles and that's it. So to think about getting in a, in a small boat and trying to cross the Atlantic or cross the Pacific sounds really, really lonely and overwhelming. And so God gives us these glimpses in creation to help us to get an idea of just how massive that he is, that he created all of these things and all of the things that we can't see. I remember when I was growing up, I don't know if this debate still goes on, but it was, I remember hearing adults for a few years of time when I was probably in grade school, middle school, talk about could God create a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? And, and, you know, then people would kind of talk about the pros and cons of this. And I think the whole, the whole hypothetical misses who God is. First of all, rocks aren't that heavy unless you have gravity, which God created gravity. And if God could create a rock so big he couldn't lift it, then he would, be, he would not be infinite. He would be finite. And so I, it's, I understand that the point is of why people were probably even talking about it is how do we kind of understand how God big it, how can we put limits on God's power And that's the whole point of what Isaiah is saying here, is that we can't. And we will spend all of eternity exploring his infinite understanding, infinite power, and infinite majesty. And it will be the most satisfying thing that we've ever done. So this should also really steady us in times when we see how big God is in times of trouble. Calvin says, and this is a direct quote, For if the conviction of the power of God were deeply seated in our hearts, we would not be much alarmed and would not be disturbed by any calamity whatever. So we're going to go on to verse 13, where verse 12 is very close-ended. God's measured the oceans. He's measured the mountains. These are things that we can see and kind of understand. Verse 13 is more open-ended. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? So he doesn't even try to give us anything to compare to. He's just saying it's so big, who can even think about trying to measure the Spirit of the Lord, who God is, or what man shows him counsel? Again, this is to hearken us back to our mortality and our limited uh, abilities. So it doesn't matter. The President of the United States, uh, the chief of central banks around the world, CEOs, military leaders, Every person who's in a position of high authority has lots of advisors and counselors that they're drawing upon for help because they, they, they don't have expertise in every single area. So when you think about the president, he has a cabinet of secretaries, he has military advisors, he gets advice from the central bank, he has Congress, he has a chief of staff. If you, you can go on down the list of all these people are there, that are there just to support him and helping him making good decisions. So God is saying that there's no one to show him counsel. And why is there no one to show him counsel? Let's look at verse 14. Whom did he consult and who made him understand? 
who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. So here we see God as the original exclusive source for knowledge, justice, and understanding. So there's no one, when he was making creation, he didn't hire a consultant. There was no one there. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they created out of the overflow of who they are. So verse 12, we see he's in control, right? We see all of these tangible pictures where he's completely in control of everything. But it's one thing to be in control of everything. It's another thing to have all knowledge, all justice, and all understanding. So if he didn't have all knowledge, we could do things that he would know about and get away with it. If he was not just, that would be horrible to be dreaded. Somebody who was sovereign and who was in control of everything and had no concept of justice, that would be probably um, about the most unthinkable thing we could, stand, we could think of to stand. Um, and so God is saying here, he's the original source of justice, knowledge, and understanding. So whatever we have, is a gift from him. There's nothing that we achieve on our own without help from him. And this is important to think about even at a deeper level. There, there's a deeper level or layers of knowledge and justice and understanding that we will never get to in this life while we're finite and tainted with sin. So when you look at things around the world and wonder, how can that be going on? Or when you see someone at work and wonder, how can that person be in power? Or when somebody um, does something that's unjust and gets away with it, and you wonder, how can that be happening? You, it, those, those kinds of things can create tension in your mind about what you see and who God is. It's helpful to remember that we are looking, Paul says, as through a dirty window that we cannot see clearly yet. So there's a level, there are layers of knowledge and understanding and justice that we will not fully understand. But God is sovereignly orchestrating all of this for his glory. In Psalm 139, 17 and 18 is helpful here. Um, it says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. So the psalmist is basically saying here, we cannot fully understand the mind of God here. We will spend eternity understanding and seeking the mind of God, and our joy will increase through it. And verse 14, I think, is also really where we see the gospel. Because God is not unjust, which means, and we know he's holy. He's the source of all justice, and he's holy, which means he's set apart. So, he cannot overlook sin, or he would be unjust. So a judge that were to just let all criminals go free and, and enacted no punishment would not be a just judge. So God cannot overlook offenses. And he is so mighty that he would be, he would be righteous to just punish all of us. But he's also, we see back in verse 11, tender like a shepherd, that he took the punishment. This is where we see God the Son come in. He took the punishment. So God is fully justice because unjustice either has to be punished or it has to be covered. And so Jesus came because we could never, we could never be just on our own. Jesus came so that we could be covered by his justice 
so that we could spend eternity with him. So not only is this God so powerful and so glorious, but he is so gracious and so merciful that he would send himself so that we could spend eternity with him instead of separated from him. So when it's important when you're reading in the Old Testament to always look and see God's whole uh, plan from the beginning to end of the gospel. So we're going to look at verse 14 and 16 together because they go together well, and then 15 and 17 together. So I'm going to jump down to verse 16. It says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. So that may, mean, that may not mean a lot to you, but in that day and time, the best way that you could honor God was to go make a, an offering to him of, of something of high worth. And um, Gabellion says that Lebanon was the richest forest to, to the Near East. So that part of the world, uh, the people that Isaiah is speaking to, if you said, you know, it would be like today if you said, hey, who has, who has the best beaches in the U.S.? You know, you might say Florida, you might say California. So he's using this Lebanon so that people know, okay, even if you took the most expensive, best set of trees and all of the animals that are in the forest, and you were able to somehow come together and make this massive offering to God, it still would be just inconsequential. And Psalm 50 is helpful here. So in verses 10 through 12, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field, snakes, field mice, anything. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So God cannot get hungry. He's unlike us because he is the source of everything. So there's nothing that, there's not, he, he's so powerful, there's nothing that could come back to satisfy him. But he, again, stoops to our level. He's saying, okay, I can't get hungry, but even if I could, why would I tell you? I own I, everything in the universe that you see and unseen is mine. It's my possession. So why would I come to you when you have nothing? Again, we are poor and helpless, but God is still gracious in that he unites himself with us. Okay, so verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So, verse 17 really puts it well because you see God basically saying, the nations are inconsequential. I mean, when you go to the when you go to the deli, and you tell the you know the the butcher that you want salami or ham or whatever, you don't first say, "Hey, will you wipe off the scales to make sure that, that the dust doesn't weigh too much?" But that's the point here. It's, dust is so small it can't even be measured. So God is saying the nations are so inconsequential that they can't even be measured. In fact, He calls them less than nothing. What's less than nothing? Negative. Negative money is not good, okay? So God is saying it's, it's not even worth counting. Now, am I saying that you can't be patriotic? No, God, that's not what I'm saying here, that you can't be patriotic or you can't vote or you can't run for office or anything like that. What I'm saying is God is saying I am, orde- I am sovereignly ordaining and orchestrating everything, including political powers, for my glory and according to my perfect plan. So I think these verses are really helpful, especially in a year like this where we had an election. So um, 2014, 
there was a big swing to the Republican Party. 2008, there was a big swing to, to the Democratic Party. So regardless of whatever side you're on, you should find hope in this verse. Because if you're a Democrat, you shouldn't lose hope because your hope is not in political power. God is sovereignly or orchestrating things for his good. If you're a Republican, you shouldn't be overly optimistic by putting your hope in political power because, again, God is sovereignly in control of things for his glory. So, he, the, and again, the point is, um, well, look at 23 and 24. I wanted to read those. So, it says, Who raises up princes to nothing, so we're still in Isaiah 40, and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely they are sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither. When the tempest carries them off, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So God is saying, no matter how powerful or great you think somebody is, all I have to do is let out a little breath, breath and they fly away like a dandelion. So, um, again, the, I think the repetition is good, that God helps us know that he's orchestrating everything according to his plan. Now, so we've seen kind of verses 9 through 11, beholding God for who he is, that that's our reward. Verses 12 through 17, that God is unlimited. So now verse 18, this is the crescendo or the climax. God comes in and he says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? And this is what makes it a difficult endeavor to understand who God is, is we don't have anything to compare him to. There are no analogies that will fully encapsulate who he is. There's no limerick that you can write that will tell of all of his beauty. So he helps us out by comparing himself sometimes to things or animals. But at some point, we need to think about who he is and how infinite and great he is. So again, as I mentioned, he gives us a lot of things in life that are very satisfying. If you think about eating really delicious food, or if you think about um, the joy of intimacy and the sanctity of marriage, um, or you think about hanging out with friends and kind of laughing uncontrollably and having really good times that you remember, all of these things are foretaste. They're small glimpses of what heaven is going to be like. None of them are as sweet or as satisfying or as lasting as how we are going to spend all of eternity with no end pursuing God. And so it's, it's helpful for us to think about that and to think about that we will never get tired of it. In fact, not will we never get tired of it. Um, Randy Alcord in his book about heaven talks about that God th- that basically makes the argument that God is so um, glorious and inexhaustible that throughout eternity our joy is going to increase, increase, increase without any limit because we're going to understand more and more and more of who God is and how enjoyable it is to be with him. Now, this is really helpful too because we're tempted toward idolatry. And in that day and time, as I mentioned, the the two big political players were Assyria and Babylon. And so it could have been very tempting for Israel to look and say, hey, they have these guys that they're worshiping and it seems like they're doing better than we are. So maybe we should dump, you know, this God of Jacob and we should spend our time pursuing these idols. And so God has has spent this time reminding them that, no, I am your joy. I am your reward. More than more than military success, more than political power, more than 
diets or leaders or money or houses or family, anything in life that you enjoy or think is good. I am more satisfying than that. And we're tempted in our day not necessarily to to go get statues and figurines of gods of nations around us, but to put our hope in other things um, like leaders or money or power. So I want to close with a couple of things um, from John Calvin that I think really, really kind of capture this whole thing well. And I I hope, um, again, one of the most encouraging things we can do, at some point when you're thinking about God being infinite, your mind should shut down and you should just kind of implode because we're finite and we can't. But you should leave that endeavor with more joy and more security and more satisfaction than when you started. So Calvin talks about that it's not only an injury to think of God as kind of above all things. And so, you know, whatever you think is great is here and God's kind of at the top. But it's an injury to God if we don't even place him way above things that we consider divine. And I want to read this last quote when he's talking about verse 18 specifically. It says, In order to know God, therefore, we must not frame a likeness of him according to our own fancy, but we must betake ourselves to the word in which he lively image in which his lively image is exhibited to us. Let's pray.